This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reed's Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money. This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have a very special guest on because we are peeling back the curtain and having on the composer behind this show's music, along with Jeff and I's films as of recent. That guest is Stephen D. Bennett. Stephen talks about his move from Louisiana to Los Angeles, how he works with filmmakers to create a music score that complements the film, and so, so much more. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and we are mixing it up today with a very special guest. Uh, This gentleman is someone that Andrew and I have personally worked with, and he's also become a good friend of ours. He's a Los Angeles-based composer. He was selected to participate in the Society of Composers and Lyricists uh, 2018 mentorship program. He was also a finalist for the ASCAP Film Scoring Workshop and was selected to participate in the Los Angeles Film Conducting Intensive created by David Newman. You've likely heard his music on CBS, ABC, TLC, the History Channel, and a host of others. Please welcome our good friend, Stephen D. Bennett. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you tonight, Stephen? I'm doing just fine, thank you. How are y'all? We're doing good. We're doing good. I'm in here in Austin. We're in the uh, the ice apocalypse right now, so we're all hunkered <laughs> down at home. I don't know what's happening up in Chicago with Andrew, but uh, uh, but you know, Stephen, I don't know if you recall, but we met years ago. I was doing a uh, I was doing a short film uh, with a an actress and writer named Mary Anselone, and I was looking for music, and I found you on Audio Jungle, and I loved your music, and I became a fan, and. Then I don't know if I found you on Facebook or what it was and, and realized you were in Monroe, Louisiana, and I was born in Monroe, actually West Monroe. And so I just, you know, sent you an email and we started chatting. We became friends. And since then, you've scored a number of things for us. So uh, uh, that was really fun. And and I'm curious, um, what led you into becoming a composer? How did How did that start for you? Yeah, sure. And I, I do remember that. Uh, it was through Audio Jungle. And I think in my profile on it, I I had that uh, it allows you to put your location at the time I had Monroe. Uh, and you you actually messaged me on Audio Jungle, I think. Um, Is that I what it was? Remember. Yeah, okay. I think I, I was something like that. Uh, but I do I do remember uh, remember that. And just a weird, weird way to start a relationship. But here we are. It's been, and it's been a pleasure <laughs> working with you guys. Um, so yeah, I got started doing music early. Uh, my mother was insistent that uh, my sister and I both take piano, and like most children, we hated every second of it. And I fought her all <laughs> the time to uh, to have to go to lessons and practice thirty minutes a day. Blah blah blah. Uh, uh, well, mom always knows time. best. Yeah, yep. and so finally, I don't know. I turned about twelve, maybe eleven, twelve. And Ma was just tired of fighting. And so she said, fine, you don't have to do piano anymore. And so I quit piano. But I started uh, in uh, like seventh, eighth grade. Um, Around that time, I started picking up guitar because that was the cool thing for the girls. And uh, guitar and bass and drums, the rock stuff, and kind of through... Um, my church growing up, they uh, they had like praise bands and music the needs, and I kind of reignited that passion uh, 
through through those uh, opportunities and ended up getting into the talented music program at my high school and uh, started kind of diving more into theory and realizing there's a whole world beyond just the four chord progression and ended up going to school for music but the uh, it was composition focused not film music focused um, and I went to the University of Louisiana at Monroe which is at the time where I was uh, and graduated from there and then moved to Nashville and you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my music. Film music really never popped in my head as an opportunity. I loved film music, listening to it. I just didn't understand it well enough to know that it was a career path. What was the career path at that time that you thought it was going to be? You know, honestly, I have no idea. So I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, <laughs> Ma, when I went to college, she always beat it into my head about, you know, I don't care what you do as long as you're happy. If you're a ditch digger, that's fine as long as it brings you joy. And so I went into music education at first. And so mom was like, okay, good. You can get a job as a teacher. Uh, that's fine. And then about halfway through my career, I realized I did not want to teach. I did the, uh, where you have to go in and shadow some teachers, uh, for, uh, a certain amount of hours per semester. And I did that enough that I realized I didn't want to do that. And so I decided to switch to composition. And then I told my mother and she said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Not like that. That's not what I meant. Something that could, <laughs> you could still have a job by the time you get out. Um, but <laughs> she, uh, she let me switch. Um, and so I got composition and really there was no uh, end goal. It's just something that I love to do. And so I moved to Nashville because um, we had some family out there and stayed there for a while and then got involved in working for a music store, you know, really putting that composition degree to use. Um, and then through that store, I just I'd meet I meet musicians, local musicians, Nashville people, and started getting into writing commercial music. And thought, oh, there's a path to make some kind of money. And I did that for a while. And uh, in Nashville, while there's a budding film scoring bubble it, at the time, this was 2011, 2012. It wasn't still wasn't much it was still a radio town and still and still is today um, much more radio than than film uh, i realized that there wasn't much growth there if i wanted to uh continue in the path and commercial music at that level really only gets so far and so i knew the only place left uh, to move was either new york or los angeles and it was an easy choice los angeles um and so i moved out here in 2015 and have been here since and have been slowly growing my career and uh, kind of finding new passions along the way. Uh, and it's been a wonderful journey to this point. But so the, it was just a kind of an odd occurrence as to how I got out here relationship wise. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful journey and a long car drive. I'm curious what your initial experience was moving to Los Angeles. Did you have something lined up where there are opportunities or what oh, yeah, just coming yeah. out with so, nothing so this this was the thing this is the thing that makes me look back and go wow you're an idiot uh it worked <laughs> out but i can't believe it how close to being destitute <laughs> i was uh, i was just so starry-eyed with i'm gonna i'm gonna own this town in one week like so so dumb uh i came out with my buddy chris Maroy. Um, who y'all are familiar with. Um, yep. He's also done some artwork sure. for y'all. He's a 
he's a fantastic actor and he's been building his career actor and graphic designer and he's been building his career out here as well and been doing quite well for himself and i'm very proud of yeah, it he's great about so at the same time that i was looking to make a change in my life and move out here and really uh, put roots down in this field i was talking to him he's been my best friend since high school and uh, the brother i never had and he was also in a point in his life where he wanted to uh, make a change. And once again, I was saying around that time, New Orleans was drying up for bigger film opportunities. It was a very small pond at that, at that point. And so he said, you know what? And I asked him, do you want to come with me? And he said, yes, let's do it. So um, from Nashville, I moved back to Louisiana for about six months to kind of prepare and uh, save up some more money and uh, tie off some loose ends. And then we drove out together and the we just had an Airbnb set up for a week and we thought that'd be plenty of time to find an apartment. Um, no job prospects. We had done an exploratory trip uh, about three months prior. We flew out and uh, with the intention of finding like work or opportunities and it ended up being like we went to Dodger games. We went hiking. We went <laughs> to the beach. We did all the you fun had your stuff. Priorities, and, you had your priorities uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> lined up really well. Yeah, and so we uh, <laughs> we thought we just high high in the sky kind of thing, and uh, so we got here, and we had this Airbnb, beautiful little place in Eagle Rock, um, like a story uh, a storybook house, uh, and that we were able to rent a room for a week, and uh, I ended up we started putting nose to the grindstone, however that phrase goes, and I started thinking about how to get work but it, i knew it wasn't going to be music because i my rig was not set up i had no place to put it so i had to get some kind of job and so i went with a temp agency who placed me at an ad agency uh, where I, I worked in the finance department which i was very lucky i had a friend who had used them they got me a connection at the temp agency and within a couple of weeks i had a job and by the end of our week at the airbnb we had found an apartment that was not far away and was uh, LA relatively affordable. Uh, it was a big pill to swallow rent prices from Nashville and Louisiana to here, um, but it was the most affordable we could fi we could find, and it was available then. And we snagged it, and so we're like, oh, "Okay, this is great." Uh, Comes like fast forward a year or two as we start hanging out with more people and hearing other people's stories. That that was such a reckless way to do it. Ever so many people we've met came out with that intention and just had to couch surf um, for or Airbnb swap between places for months before they could find a spot. Uh, and we didn't we just didn't realize how ridiculous of a choice that was to make and so incredibly grateful that it worked out in the end. It was it was reckless. And I would not recommend recommend that path. <laughs> I would definitely have a a job of some kind, whether or not it's in the industry, lined up and at least a, a three-month plan of where you're going to stay before you find an apartment. Well, it clearly is, is working out, and you, uh, you've you been getting work. You've been, you've been doing some great work. We, we found an apartment in Glendale, and the agency that I worked at was Media Arts Lab, and that was all the way down in Playa del Rey, which was an hour-and-a-half commute one way. And I it, did that for a couple of years um, to kind of get myself solid on my feet financially enough to be able to... Um, start focusing again on music. So it still took a few years to re uh, reattain the the strategy that I was originally aiming for. Uh, you know, switching back over to composing and 
and now that you've been doing, you know, a lot of projects, um, I'm curious, you've done multiple scores for, for us. You did, uh, Andrew's film, uh, Wildlands. You also did his film Punchline. Mm -hmm. uh, you did the music for my film. They never see it coming. Um, oftentimes directors uh, or editors use temp scores as a guidance, right? Right. Which can be both good and bad. You know, temp scores, mm -hmm. great to set up the tone of a scene and, and help an editor feel like, you know, feel the rhythm. Um, but sometimes we get tied to those. And so, you know, that's kind of a slippery slope on They Never See It Coming, the film that I asked you to score. I gave you very few notes, just some little tone, some color, some ideas of what I wanted, because I really didn't know fully what I wanted. And I'm curious yes. what the creative process uh, is for you when someone gives you mostly a blank canvas and says, hey, here are a couple ideas, figure it out. I'm curious, yeah. what what is that process like, if, if you yeah, can even define it? Yes. Uh, so um, they it really does range from, you know, here's a cut with no music, uh, you have complete control, to here's a little music, to everything is exactly as I want it, I just can't afford the licensing. <laughs> And, um, the, I do honestly prefer, uh, the having a, having something there that you're just not that attached to, uh, cause even if the music is wrong, I can still learn a lot cause you chose the temp music for a reason, right? It's a, you, you may not like the music, but there's something about it. That's, there's a reason that you chose it, whether that's the tone of it, that's the, the overall, uh, not just the tone, but like, is it, uh, is it dark instruments? Are they bright instruments? How did you cut with the temp? Did you cut it so that when a character looks over their shoulder, um, the music changed in your cut. Therefore I know without you having to say anything that whatever I write also needs to do that. So I honestly love, uh, temp, um, but breaking some, like you said, breaking some people of the imprint of that, and we call that temp love uh is <laughs> is a is a hard thing to to overcome sometimes because it's scary right you're you it's your baby it's your film and uh you've got us got it a certain way in your head that it sounds and you've been editing it and color correcting and um you've seen it a billion times and so that music is baked in but when you get a second opinion like from a composer and they write music um sometimes we get things hit things that you miss sometimes we miss things that were intended uh and it makes sense still and you find that maybe that uh, music edit wasn't needed or maybe this part wasn't needed and so it really gives you a canvas to start with and why i prefer temp over nothing um it kind of depends on the genre that i'm writing but the uh to start with silence is also it's scary on my ends because uh that is completely like, what do I feel about the film? Less of uh, what the, um, who, the director, the producers, whoever's making the temp decisions, um, how they feel about the film. So like I could read a scene and I could come back with, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of bright. It's kind of, you know, it's not that bad, a little drama, not so much, but on your end, uh, you may have really wanted it to be dark. And if I send you something that doesn't, at least echo that in some way, then it uh, kind of looks bad on me. So I really do prefer a little bit of temp in there. I guess that's a good point. It is it is a relationship, not just between you and the and the and the score and and the film, but also 
trying to figure out what the director or the editor wants. Right. Yes. Interesting. The uh, and sometimes when there's like no, uh, when uh, when there's no direction temp wise, it it can be very freeing um, in some aspects. So on Andrew on uh, punchline, like I I don't remember there being. Um, I don't remember the temp on it, but I remember like early on, I was writing that, that's kind of six, eight, a smarmy string, uh, figure that was very much like a Henry Mancini kind of thing. Um, cause I just had a, a, a bug in me to, to do with it. It might be fun to juxtaposition this serious, uh, tone that was set at the dinner table to this, whatever the radio was playing. And it was uh, some, something very romantic and uh really not fitting with the scene but to make it all that much uh odd that more odd to uh to score to and that was i don't remember that being part of a temp or anything it was just kind of a bug and that i felt worked very well by the end of it Mm -hmm. i don't think we had a temp when i sent you the original cut to the project i mean that entire thing was a little bit of a fever dream we filmed like both shorts in the same day like rushed over a copy to you because we knew we wanted you to score it and yeah i don't i just i think it was more of a blank template an empty plate like you were saying before sure yeah and sometimes that sometimes it works some like the the that short had a very at least to me very easily digestible vibe to it from very from the first scene mm-hmm. uh, so it was kind of easier to uh, dive in on and hit the mark uh without a temp so it, it worked in that in that aspect, but uh, on like something like in the uh, beginning of the Never See It Coming, Jeff, you remember there's those big hits with the um, as it's doing the establishing shots of the city, uh, where you would cut some synth stuff to kind of hit those uh, to the frame. Uh, it was very helpful having the temp that was there before, because that allowed me to. No, not just where to hit that you were, uh, which one of those cuts you were wanting to hit, but how hard you wanted to hit them, and it didn't really need to be uh, discussed at that point. It was just implied, and so it was very helpful. Yeah, I'm curious. Is there, you know, you've done so many different kinds of films. Is there something you haven't done yet, either genre-wise, when it comes to music or type of film that you've always wanted to, or you're still waiting to come across? Uh, yeah. On your plate? Uh, so the uh, the thing that I think most composers. Uh, pine for our orchestral scores and uh most of the time these days it's there's not really just a pure orchestral score they're hybrid um they i mean it's a spectrum but uh, like i would love and i've never gotten the chance to uh, do a uh kind of a, a, a nature doc where it's mostly sweeping orchestra kind of things uh very I love that style of score. If you watch like, um, oh, what's that Netflix one? Uh, the nighttime one where it's all of the, uh, it's a nature doc, but it's all at nighttime with night vision cameras. Uh, Night on Earth, I think. Um, wonderful stuff. Like Benjamin Wallfish has done a few. Um, they're wonderful. So those kind of scores are something adventure. Uh, it was something that I, I would like to be able to get more into. Interesting. Yeah. And switching gears, you've had so many great mentors or teachers in your life through the various programs you've been a part of, like the film conducting intensive. I'm curious if you were to be a mentor to someone right now, 
what is one thing you take away from those valuable experiences that have shaped you? Uh, it would be humbleness and uh, being comfortable with being terrible at something at first. Uh, a lot of this job is uh, of, of being a composer out here in Los Angeles specifically is being able to pivot. Um, you never know what the next brief is going to sound like. Um, and you need to be able to quickly learn a new style, emulate it well, and make it your own. And realizing the first few attempts are going to be terrible. They're going to be something that you will listen to years down the line and be like, I never want to hear that again. Oh, it's okay. hard to tell sometimes because <laughs> at the at the beginning, you think it's great. Because you're like, yeah, I nailed this uh, this dubstep style my first try. But then you like really get into it and you realize that there's a lot of work that goes into making dubstep or something. There's there's all these very intricate little decisions that on the surface aren't aren't really uh, uh, like in your face until you get in and try and do it. You start seeing, oh, there's, a, there's actually a lot of artistry on the other side of it. It's not just a bunch of computer noises. And so uh, same with the uh, conducting intensive. Um, I had very little conducting experience uh, through college. We had, it's a small university. And so we did not have a large orchestra, even though I did get to conduct a few times, wasn't a lot. And uh, opportunities to record live musicians are few and far between. So I hadn't really gotten a lot of experience before that intensive. And the intensive was designed for composers who wanted to conduct as well. So it was uh, because there are a lot of intensives that are just for conductors. who that, That's their career. They conduct. That's what they do. And that's a whole thing out here. And this is specifically for composers who have never done much conducting or at least have very little experience. So it was kind of perfect for me. Um, we started at basics, just conducting one person, and then you build up all the way to conducting um, a full 60-piece orchestra uh, on the Warner Brothers uh, Eastwood stage, and uh, which in three days, like you build up real quick. It was intensive, and it's it's a terrifying experience to get up there in front of some of the best players in Los Angeles. Uh, for the first time and they know that you don't know what you're doing so they're kind they uh they they're in it to win it as well um but so my my advice for if i were to mentor someone is just be comfortable with being bad and uh and crashing a lot you do a lot of uh trying really hard and it still is just not enough and you still fail at it and then just getting up and trying again the next day well, everybody has the right to get better. You know, that's that's kind of a, I, I forget who it was. I saw there was an actor that said, you know, we all have the right to get better. There's nothing wrong with with failing a few times. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, going back to the conducting, um, you know, the conducting aspect of it, can you unpack that a little bit? Because I, I think a lot of us who are outside that world, you know, we see conductors and they're working with musicians and 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 what is it? you're doing with them i mean what's the relationship between you know you're talking to the string section versus the you know the brass or the woodwinds what what is that process yeah so conducting it's one of those things where uh from the outside you don't realize there's a lot of of stuff going a lot of gears turning um uh, until you start trying to conduct and realize it is so hard to do um, so for instance, a conductor 
at least on a, a recording stage, their job is to just make sure everybody um, that most importantly plays in time to whatever the film is. Um, but they also have to make sure they're kind of the, the fail safe. They're making sure everything's in tune. They're making sure all of the instrumentalists are playing what is written, um, that uh, there is a bird's eye view of everybody playing together because a, a violin, well, let's say someone in the back, like a like a, a French horn player, uh, they can relatively guess the volume that they're supposed to be playing and it's written on their paper, on their sheet music. But the conductor has the bird's eye view from the front of maybe the horns are too loud and they need to play a bit softer. And the conductor is the one that's going to kind of tell them to quiet down. And the players out here are so good that they will just, they'll they'll do that. They'll be able to remember that. They'll write it down and move through. So they balance the volume. They uh, they can catch mistakes that happen, usually better than um, other people because they're also, once again, at the bird's eye view, they can tell if, if a section was late or early or it didn't come in or someone got lost or someone's uh, sheet music isn't transposed correctly or a ton of... Uh, things that they has to go through their mind on top of while they're doing this balancing act of guiding these players they will have the um sometimes will have the film playing in the back where they will be playing the music and syncing it to the picture live and so they have to make sure and they use something called streamers which are these little white lines you've probably seen that move from left to right across the screen um, and it's like this white line that takes two seconds to just slowly slide across left to right. And when it gets to the right side, that means there's something that's supposed to line up, whether that's a um, that's where music is supposed to hit something or that's just uh, making sure everybody's still on beat. And it's a visual guide. And so they're kind of the driver of the carnival. Like it's it's uh, it's a lot going on and there's. Uh, this intensive was built more around being able to conduct freely than it was conducting to a what's called a click out here or the metronome. Um, so the idea is generally out here you play to a click. You have a metronome that is playing in uh, either everybody's ears or the section leaders and the conductor and everybody plays in metronome uh, to the whatever the music calls for. But sometimes you have free conducting where there is no click and it's up to the conductor to set that tempo and keep to it and make sure that it stays in uh, uh, stays synced to the film. And that can give it a very ex a score, a very expressive feel to it when the music can ebb and flow and slow down and speed up uh, kind of in the moment. And the conductor is just the conduit in which all of that passes through for the P the team in the um, at the at the mix console who are making all the other decisions of does this cue work do we need to rewrite a part um, do we need to have a pass without the French horns playing uh, do we need to make a uh, is this going to be something we need to edit down the way like the there's a whole bunch of conversations that go on in that room that the uh, conductor is not having to worry about but just gets the music through him or her to that room. If that makes any sense, there's just, it's a list of a million things that they have to do. It's not that different than directing a film, I suppose. Oh, sure. You know, you're, yeah. You're... yeah. The, uh, in the concert world, it's a little different. There are no, as far as I know, unless there's uh they're playing to a, uh, a pre-record of some kind. 
if you go to see a symphony, it's going to be all free conducting. It's all the conductor deciding the tempo um, and deciding when people will get loud, when people will get soft and relatively to the uh, what's written on the music. Um, and it's very free and very artistic. But in the recording environment, things have to be uh, so, uh, or for a film recording environment, things have to be done quickly and correctly. So uh, the better the conductor, um, the quicker problems can be solved. And uh, time every minute on a recording stage out here can range from uh, hundreds to uh, hundreds to thousands, depending on uh, what you're what you're doing. Um, it's incredibly expensive to have all of those people in the room, um, everybody, all the players, all of the uh, recording engineers, having the producers, having everybody together is expensive. It's, it's an expensive minute. So the faster you can solve problems, because there's always problems, uh, the less money it's going to cost. And so uh, it's a very delicate balancing act. And uh, so, yeah, that's without rambling too much more about it. That's it. And and as a director, you probably are also dealing with um, actors who don't show up or uh, a lens that is is broken and you didn't realize until you go to shoot or uh, something of that nature. And there's that those responsibilities are uh, just a lot on the shoulders to take. Interesting. Yeah, it's a combination of, of troubleshooting and also just doing the creative process. Sure, sure, sure. And pulling back the scale a little bit from, you know, full orchestras to just maybe working with a first time indie director who maybe never had the resource of a music composer before they just pulled off pre-made music off Audio Jungle. What's your initial process like when you work with a director for people who may not know that process? Sure. Yeah. And a uh, fun little side note is uh, this a couple of weeks ago was the Borrego or excuse me, um, in early January was uh, the Borrego Springs Film Festival. Uh, and I was asked to lead a workshop called Your Composer's Composure. And it was a, um, a, a workshop for new directors who have never worked with a live composer and to see what that process looks like on my end. And so I brought a, a, a scene from a film I had done and I had every version uh, that we played so that they could see how the scene was built from, uh, we started with the temp score then we moved to the piano sketch. Then we moved to the mock-up and then the final dub so they could see really how that goes and walking through uh, kind of all of the changes that are involved in that and why it's generally a better idea if you have the uh, ability to have a live composer to do so. Uh, the thing to kind of immediately take away is it's just, it's nice to work with people. It's nice to have that warm connection uh, of someone who is invested in your film. Uh, and it's, it's nice to be on my end. It's nice to be a part of something like that on a team who's dedicated their time and effort and blood and sweat and tears and money to make this piece of art, to get to contribute my own little bit to it. I'm very grateful for those opportunities and young or newer directors uh, often can be scared of a composer um, because it's just this world that you don't understand. Um, but when you get to make small decisions, like you're a, you want to have a scene a certain way and you can try your best to cut 
library music and it just doesn't work and you oh i wish that the melody just didn't do this at this time that would be so great well if you have a composer that's a thing you could just say you don't like this could you change this or you really like this or you liked how the uh music was able to duck and weave and uh, maneuver around dialogue in a scene which if you're working with pre-existing tracks you can't really do without a lot of painful editing that oftentimes if you're not a skilled music editor is very noticeable um there are a lot of things that go into music editing and having a solid understanding of how music flows is probably the most important because it's not a uh, it's not just a mathematical equation of uh you need this amount of seconds so put in this and then i need a tone change so i have this many seconds so i put in this you need to be able to move between feelings and it's just it's so much easier and more organic to have a live person do it and uh, working with a new director i generally am very open with how to uh how what their options are I'm completely engrossed in whatever project it is that I'm going to work on and I'll do it till it's right. And uh, you just find a sort of uh, flow with that person, with that director that you're working with, and it just makes the music that much better. Well, there's also, um, you know, temp music will have a certain theme, you know, it'll, it'll have a certain beat, a certain rhythm, a certain, you know, chorus or whatever. But there's also the connective tissue between when a scene goes from a comedic moment to say something dramatic and you, you can interpret that, you know, temp music's not going to be able to do that. It's going to be, I need temp music for this moment and then temp music for the other moment. And they just, they just collide. Whereas you as a composer, you can create that connective tissue. Absolutely. The, the, uh, the, the cohesiveness of a story is, uh, very, very important. Um, so for instance, uh, to kind of give you uh, an example, in uh, y'all's film, uh, They Never See It Coming, to give the film a very uh, a unique sound and a cohesive um, feeling, one of the things that I did, and you you may not have uh, heard it because uh, it's, it's mixed into the score, but it's there and I can send you examples if you want. Um, I started thinking about the film after watching the first cut, like how can I incorporate some sounds that only exist in this film? And so I started watching it and I was like, well, there, most of the film takes place outside of a van and they obviously spent a lot of time in the van uh, for you know dealing with the, the situation that they were in. And so I thought, uh, kidnapper, being in, a, being in a vehicle, maybe I record some vehicle sounds and incorporate that uh, in vehicle adjacent sounds uh, and incorporated that into the score. So uh, a few things that I did was I recorded my garage door opener and like the hum of the, of the engine. And Good. I recorded that and I turned it into a synth and that's baked in to the score. And then I recorded um, various car door slams, um, uh, some percussive instruments on the car, like a license plate hitting it with mallets and, and sticks. Uh, I even felt like, okay, if I was being kidnapped, I'd be thrown in a trunk. So I put the recorder in the trunk and then slammed the trunk a few times and got some nice bass sounds um, that are mixed throughout the score. And uh, that kind of custom stuff is very hard to find uh, to, uh, in library music um, and be able to weave it in 
artistically. And then there's like a, a motif of this very avant-garde synth that is kind of uh, uh, Jeff's character, um, his light motif, I would call it, um, whenever he, you could just see the machinations going on in his mind and his twisted mind uh, and being able to come up with that and move it to the right spots and the right keys and slow it down and speed it up uh, just gives a score cohesiveness that it otherwise uh, would not have had with a, a bunch of pieced together from a bunch of different artists' music. Right, right. And and when you say, uh, Jeff, you're talking about Jeff Weber, our producer, he was the actor in that film. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not not this Jeff. <laughs> but that that was such a smart choice. I mean, it was it was very creative and very clever. And I know exactly those moments you're talking about. I can just that they were you really did a wonderful job. Favorite scores either for film or TV growing up that inspired you, as well as ones you think are currently breaking new ground that people need to be on the lookout for. Oh yeah. Okay. So the cliche answer and i'm not afraid to say it is john williams of course uh that's i don't know it's that's just like a, anybody's lying if they say anything else <laughs> it's it's a uh, anybody who grew up uh uh during his uh the, the golden age of his career i guess um you just yeah that's that's the main thing but <laughs> i've really really noticed started to notice film scores in my favorite genre that sadly really doesn't exist anymore is the 90s family comedy um, okay uh randy edelman david newman is my favorite of those uh composers uh david newman who is the oh uh, the newman clan out here are their thing so there's david newman whose brother is Thomas Newman. Thomas Newman uh, is of great fame, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, um, uh, Finding Nemo, like a bunch of very big, big projects. And their father was Alfred Newman, who did the 20th Century Fox fanfare and hundreds of movies, uh, kind of one of the fathers of film music. Um, Alfred Newman and Max Steiner, that area, the, the 40s, um, when they were really getting started and figuring out how film music works. So the Alfred Newman had his kids, Thomas, David, and a few other Newmans. And their cousin is Randy Newman of Toy Story fame and other works. Uh, but David Newman's score to Galaxy Quest, to Matilda, um, to uh, Jingle All the Way uh, are all just fantastic pieces of 90s nostalgia for me love them uh it's kitschy it's corny and nowadays you could say even it's a little little cringy it was just very on the nose but um it was a it was a wonderful time for film music i loved it uh, so that was back then uh but now the score that has been rattling in my head for um a couple of years now and is still ongoing is the score to the white lotus oh okay yeah so uh, I'm going to see real quick the uh, the they just had the um, second season yeah second season uh, we we finished watching and the composer is Cristobal uh, Tapia de Vere is his name and uh, it is such an off the wall season one specifically such an off the wall score so unique um, so percussive so odd and it it is one of those things that doesn't feel like it would fit 
the uh the film and i don't i don't know what the uh the background on the temp was for that uh but because i don't know what you would temp with to make it sound like how it ended up being uh, the dude's such an artist um but that first season score if you go listen to it is fantastic um i'm also currently enjoying the score by gustavo for uh the last of us on hbo oh i'm loving that show yeah 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 big big into it. we call it uh um my uh, my wife has trouble she never played the game she's not familiar with it so uh she forgets the name of it often so we just call it cordyceps weekly <laughs> uh before before we wrap up this episode you have a project coming out soon a gift for all ages it's a christmas movie tell us more about that yeah so uh, a gift for all ages this was a wonderful wonderful little project that i got to do um it's a christmas movie that's that is an homage to the 1940s christmas movies um classic movies and uh the bishop's wife and uh miracle on 34th street that era of black and white movies um and it's shot it's in black and white it's all done on us on a stage like uh like movies were done back then um it was uh essentially the story of uh of the uh, beginnings of uh, a uh, uh, fictional telling of uh, a night before Christmas uh, poem of how it came to be. And uh, it was when they were, they were looking for a composer. They were looking for someone who could write in the style of 1940s golden age film. And I saw that brief come through and my, my jaw dropped because that never happens. And, um, and so I, was so excited they to to throw my hat in for the ring and i knew when i read it that there were going to be hundreds of other composers that were going to be jumping at the at the chance to be able to write like that instead of doing uh some dark stuff to be able to do some lush very on the nose orchestral writing mm. and so i ended up getting the gig um and we scored it uh it's uh, all uh, all synthetic instruments because to to record this amount of this type of music would have taken a week to do uh, and would have been just cost cost prohibitive. Um, But it was such a wonderful little thing. Um, And it is uh, going to be streaming later this year, but uh, this week, the week of this uh, podcast, they're going to be streaming it for free on their websites, a gift for all ages, film.com where you can watch it. It's It's I think it's 36, 37 minutes. Um, and it's a lovely little piece and, uh, it's, it's very cute and I hope you enjoy it. Exciting. Yeah. We'll have to check it out. And yeah, now we'll just jump into our question from our producer, Jeff Weber. Is there something you've always wanted to do in a production, anything at all, but think you'd be terrible at it? Ooh, is there something that I want to do in a production that I would be terrible at? And maybe oh taking it like not music related. Sure. Yeah. I would. Uh, I would love to uh, to direct, but I have so I have no experience with that. But that, and uh, being very, very uh, aware of the pitfalls that having that job uh, would be, I would love the experience uh, to really be at the helm and see how every little puzzle piece goes into place. Uh, I find myself every project I work on. And everybody's got a different uh, workflow that they go through, but learning a new bit of filmmaking that I was previously unaware 
of how that worked. Even at the uh, the studio that I work at, my uh, my other gig is I work as an assistant for Didier Lean Rachou, who is a uh, very prolific composer. Um, is like nine times uh, in a row most performed ASCAP uh, composer of the year. Like insane. He does all of the Gold Rush and uh, uh, Deadliest Catch shows uh, for their their you know Golden Egg shows and especially working with him and seeing uh kind of how the sausage is made um on scenes uh is just wonderful and being in the director's seat or an ep seat i guess and uh putting those together and seeing what needs to move in order for something else to happen uh is wonderful idea for it's like most recently michael giacchino i don't know if you've seen this so michael giacchino is the like has been the pixar composer um like up he did uh he did the incredibles and most of other pixar things you could think of giacchino is at the helm of that he uh is now getting back into directing which apparently he went uh, as far as i remember he went to school originally for or or did some while he was in schooling and now disney is letting him have his own stuff to direct so moving from one of the top five composers in the industry to directing something uh just to get that itch. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds wonderful, but once again, I would be terrible at, because I, I don't know if I have the capacities to, uh, uh move those many things around as a director that y'all would need to. I kind of like sitting at my desk alone. <laughs> well, Hey Steven, you know, it's been, it's been great having you on the show. You're a wealth of information. Um, your work speaks for itself. Uh, we just really, really enjoyed having you. And, uh, as always, wish you the best of success in all your future endeavors. And, um, you know, hopefully we can have you back on down the road and talk some more about music and composing. I appreciate that. Thank you guys for having me on. I'm very grateful. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber. Our theme song was created by Bigfoot enthusiast Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.